So, Father God, we thank you that you are a trustworthy God. That you are a God that we can go to and that we can lean into. And, oh, Lord God, we do ask you for the grace to trust you more. Someone in the house today, Lord God, needs the grace to trust you for the first time. That they would say yes to you. They would surrender control of their lives. And that they, Lord God, would know you for the first time as Abba Father. Someone else here today, Lord God, they're walking through a valley. And they need to be able to trust you in a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 way. That they would trust in the Lord with all their heart and lean not in their own understanding but in all their ways that they would acknowledge you and that you Lord God would direct their paths father I do pray that the seed of your word falls on good ground it's preaching time and we need to hear a word from you today meet us Lord God we pray at our point of need be with me your servant Lord God give me great power passion, clarity. May Jesus Christ, your son, be exalted. And we know when that happens that you will draw all people to yourself. Do it, Father. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in First Peter chapter 4. We are winding down our series on the book of 1 Peter. We began it in August. It's been a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Peter that we are simply calling exiles passing through without passing by. Exiles passing through without passing by. I'm going to draw to your attention four, excuse me, five verses Uh, Beginning in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, verse 8, say that with me, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly. Make note of this phrase, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality, verse 9, to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's an interesting, uh, what I call, meteorological and sociological phenomenon that has come to be labeled as Hurricane 
fatigue. Hurricane fatigue quite naturally happens to a select group of people living in specified areas of our nation that is particularly prone to hurricanes. People who live along the Florida panhandle or on either coast of Florida, up and down the eastern shores of our our nation. These are people who are most susceptible to this concept of hurricane fatigue. Hurricane fatigue happens in these regions because due to the proliferation of weather forecasts about the impending hurricanes, there are people who who lack any sense of urgency, who for whatever reason have deduced that they're not going to take the reports seriously. They're going to live any old kind of way. So while everybody else may be evacuating, they're going to stay on back home. Because after all, when the last report was given, the hurricane either didn't come, it changed directions at the last moment, or when it did come, it wasn't as bad as the weatherman said it was. So these are people who have hurricane fatigue. In fact, there's a, there's a famous photo of a woman who, who lived in one of these districts and Hurricane Ike was, was prophesied about, was forecasted, and she held up a sign at a ball game that said, take a hike, Ike. She wasn't going to leave. She wasn't going to do nothing. And the great tragedy of hurricane fatigue is... That when the hurricane does hit, when it does hit with the full weighted force that it was forecasted about, many people are injured and harmed unnecessarily uh, unnecessarily so. Many people even lose their lives because they didn't take the report seriously. They didn't have urgency and it didn't change the course of their actions. There's a theological phenomenon that I want to label as second coming fatigue. If you just read through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, there's a message that keeps resounding in almost every book of the Bible. Prophecies made about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You read them in just about all the prophets. They are either stated explicitly or implied. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Then we get to the New Testament. Jesus Christ even said of himself that he was going to return, that the Son of Man is going to return on clouds. And in the great Olivet Discourse, he talks about it with the point being, you need to be watchful. Don't get caught slipping. As the young folks say, stay woke. Because he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The apostles consistently talked about it. In fact, I'll get to some of it in just a few moments. They were consistently talking about the impending coming of Jesus Christ. They, they served in a lot of ways as spiritual weather forecasters, letting us know of the hurricane of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, this is so important that a whole book of the Bible has been given, dedicated to one central message, He's coming He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And yet there are a a lot of so-called Christians who are suffering from second coming fatigue. We cognitively and intellectually assent to this truth, 
But so many, not of you, but so many of us, I even see it in my own life. We can be embedded in a sense of spiritual lethargy, apathy, and complacency. We know it in our heads, but it has not impacted our hands and our feet. Second coming. Fatigue. This is important because when we come to our text in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, Peter begins with a note of urgency. He continues this consistent theme. He begins by saying in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. It's at hand. It's at hand. The end of all things is at hand. He is making a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. It is as if he is continuing the legacy of spiritual weathermen by saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And now right on the heels of this watch what he does he now in our text gives us a list of things to do be self-controlled because he's coming be sober-minded because he's covering above all coming above all love because he's coming show hospitality without grumbling because he's coming use your gifts to build up the body of Christ hear it now in the Bible Prophecy is never given to us to merely speculate and wait in passivity. It's not the point of prophecy. In fact, I'm not here ripping on Jehovah's Witnesses. Some of you maybe were a part of that or are a part of that. There's, there's several instances within the history of Jehovah's Witnesses in which... They prophesied that he's going to come on such and such a date. They sold their homes, sat out on the side of a hill and waited. In the Bible, we're never called to simply twiddle our thumbs and wait because he's coming. Peter says, no, because he's coming, have a sense of urgency. Give your life to what really matters. Start frittering, stop frittering your time away. Get after it, get after it, get after it, get after it. But this is problematic. This text drives people nuts. Here is Peter. He says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. And scholars are pulling their hair out here because it seems as if Peter is lying. Jesus Christ didn't return in Peter's day. He didn't return 100 years later or 500 years later or a millennium later. In fact, we're still awaiting his return. So what does this mean that the return of Jesus is at hand? Here's what it means. It means that in the continuum of salvation history, God does not need to do anything else but to send his son, and that is the last thing to be completed on God's redemptive to-do list. Or to say it another way, in God's redemptive plan, man sinned in the garden. His sin separated him from God. God then acts by sending his son, who now lives the life we could not have lived and dies the death that we should have died. He is is crucified, buried, resurrected the third day, according to the scriptures. Acts chapter 1, he ascends on high, and now the only thing left is his return. That just as he came once, he will come again. 
Therefore, get busy. Therefore, don't waste your life watching reality TV all day long. Therefore, love. Therefore, show hospitality. Therefore, live every single day. It's sort of like my wife. I'll never forget um, when she's pregnant with our oldest. In the last days of her pregnancy, she starts going into this thing that they call nesting. Here she is. She's cleaning up furiously. She's painting the room. She's giving me all this honey to-do list stuff for me to do. She's, she's about it. She's preparing. She's preparing. She's preparing. Why? Because here she is, a pregnant woman, knowing everything that needed to have happened during her pregnancy, it has already happened. There's one thing left. This baby is coming. And what did that reality do? It forced her. It compelled her to be about the business of preparing for that reality. Likewise, he calls us to, to, give at, to get after it. This is remarkable. Now, I just want to bathe you in scripture. You know, you, 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 you look at the apostles and you go, at the end of the first century, Rodney Stark, the great sociologist from, from Baylor University, I quoted it to you a couple weeks ago in his wonderful book, The Rise of Christianity. Rodney Stark says, at the end of the first century, conservatively speaking, there are only between one to 2,000 Christians. At the end of the 4th century, that number now jumps to 7.5 million. So, why were they so busy? Here's the answer. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul, he writes, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. James James 5.8 says, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. John writes, 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Revelation 22, he who testifies to these things says, speaking of Jesus, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. How does that number jump from 1,000 to 7.5 million? They knew, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Any single moment, he will appear. And therefore, we're going to be busy. So our text is a clarion call to the church to wake up. We're exiles. We're here in the bay. Yes, we can enjoy some things, but, but he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Nothing else needs to happen. I may not even finish this sermon. So the question is, if you knew he was coming in 24 hours, what would you stop doing? Stop it then. If you knew he was coming in 24 hours, what would you start doing? Then start doing it. He's coming. He's coming. All right. So Peter, this whole passage can be summed up in three words. Urgency produces 
productivity. Because he's coming, I'm now urgent. I get after it. Parenthetically, this is a truism to life. Urgency produces productivity. I mean, some of you all, you majored in all-nighters when you were in college. Right? Something in you, you knew the test was coming, but it could be coming at 8 a.m., but you ain't, you ain't going to start studying to the last moment. Some of you. You got that gift. Right? You knew about the 4,000-page, single-space, paper, 10-point font when you got the syllabus due on November 12th, but something in you wasn't going to start working on it till the week of. You're motivated by the urgency. I remember one time I was goofing off in class, goofing off in class, and my mama, who had a, she stayed at home full-time, teacher must have called my mama because I was goofing off in class. And all I know is someone said, whose mama is that at the door? And I looked at the door, and it was my mama, and, and God bless her, she had rollers in her hair, house coat, slippers. It's bad enough your mama shows up, but you don't even take the time. You know what I'm saying? Now, when I saw my mama, you know what I did? I was goofing off in class, but when I saw mama, I said, started acting like I was working. Why? Because I understood, even as a kid, that urgency, the fact that mama was at the door means I better at least start looking like. Jesus will show up at the door. And may this lead us to being about the right things. What are those things? Look at what Peter says in our text. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore... Because he's coming, have a sense of urgency. No second coming fatigue. Therefore, here's what you need to be about. He says, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Here, he begins by saying Christians should have a clear perspective. The idea of sober-minded is really straightforward. It was used then in the natural, the way it is now. It it was used of a person who had alcohol. They would would drink wine. And a person who was sober-minded, watch it now, they knew when to say when. They could enjoy without becoming inebriated. Here's what he's saying in the the supernatural. He's saying, listen, we live in the bay. It's wonderful. It's great. A lot of great stuff is happening here. You can go to the beach. You can go to great jazz concerts. Wonderful weather. Wonderful golf courses. Enjoy, but don't get drunk. Don't get inebriated with the trinkets of this life. Enjoy, but don't think that this stuff is ultimately, that the punchline of life is for you to have pleasure, 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 and oh, by the way, to make myself feel good, let me sprinkle in a little Jesus on top. No. Be sober-minded, self-controlled, it's straightforward. It's the idea of, of being disciplined here. It's the idea of of, of disciplined actions. I love what J. Oswald Sanders says in his wonderful book, Spiritual Leadership. He says, one cannot conquer the world without first conquering themselves. 
discipline, discipline, discipline. The idea here is, again, you put these two concepts together. It is a person who has a clear perspective, who is able to navigate this life, understanding that ultimately this life is not about me, but I am just passing through. I can enjoy without getting drunk on the things of this life and exercise self-control. Several years ago, I spoke at a conference in San Diego. It was my fourth straight time speaking at this conference, but it was my first time on my fourth time bringing my lovely wife with me. And uh, the previous three times I'd gone to the con- conference, um, I-, I didn't realize there was something uh, there called a mall. I only realized that there was a mall there on the fourth time, which was my wife's first time coming with me to the conference. She pointed out the mall and she says, we need to spend some time there. It was right after Christmas and they had some wonderful after Christmas sales and they had some great stores there. I mean, some wonderful stores, Nordstrom's and Neiman Marcus and Tiffany's. In fact, I remember sweet, my, 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 my wife saying to me when we passed by Tiffany, she said, honey, why don't we go in there? We, we may need to pray about upgrading my ring. I said, sweetheart, that ring is like our vows till death do us part upgrading. But we spent a wonderful several hours through that mall, all these wonderful stores. But if you were to ask us, what did we buy in all those hours? I'd have to frustratingly tell you not a thing. And the reason why we didn't buy anything is because San Diego, where that mall was, was not our home. We were just passing through. And we didn't have hardly any room in our bags. And we knew that there was a plane waiting on us to take us home. And we allowed the reality of the plane taking us to our home to help us navigate, negotiate, and make decisions while passing through that mall. Friends, all Peter is saying is we are in the mall of this world. And there are wonderful things here and we can enjoy. But don't forget, this world is not your final zip code. You're passing through. Urgency produces productivity. And that productivity means we should have a clear perspective. But secondly, it means we should have a covering love. I love what he says in verse 8. Above all, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Wow. Scholars are agreed that love is the New Testament cardinal virtue. Jesus Christ said it himself in John chapter 13. He says, by this will all people know that you're my disciples, not by what church you go to, not by how many books you've read, not by how many scriptures you've memorized, not by any of those stuff, not by the arguments you can have with people on social media, but by this will all people know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Thank you. One person. First Corinthians chapter 13. The Bible says in first Corinthians 13 now abides. That's going to go real well on radio. Now abides faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. The fruit of the spirit. Listen to the order. The fruit of the spirit is love, 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 joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The leadoff batter is love. Now, Peter says, above all, above all, it's as if he's saying, man, 
They can say a lot about you, but if there's one thing a, a person should never be able to say about you is you don't love people. Above all, it's as if Peter is saying, love is the MVP of the Christian virtues. Love. Why? He says, love one another earnestly. I love it. Since love covers a multitude of sins. And let me work on this. He's writing to church folk. And he uses love relationally. And he uses it within the context of church folk sinning. And it's not just random sins. He says love covers not just some sins. He says love covers a multitude of sins. So here's what he's saying, writing to church folk. He says, you're going to need some love. Why? Because church folk sin. Can I get an amen? Anyhow, somebody. The person on your left is a sinner. The person on your right is a sinner and the person sitting between them is a sinner. Church folk lie, church folk gossip, church folk can be greedy, church folk can be mean, church folk can be nasty, church folk can, can be divisive, church folk can be slanderous, church folk can be deceitful. Can I get an amen up in here, up in here, up in here? So he doesn't deny it. So I want you to check a box. If you're here with us and you don't know Jesus and you're saying that you just affirming why I don't come to church. Listen, any organization with people, you're going to have problems. So don't act like the church is the only place with hypocrites. Nah, you had them. At the Q house, at the Kappa house, with the AKAs, the Deltas, Skiwee, all that stuff, you have it. So, if your criteria for relationship is perfection, you're going to be lonely. So what you need, Peter says, when folk don't act right and when they let you down, you're going to need the weapon of love. And watch it. He says two things about love, that it covers a multitude of sins. And he says, love one another earnestly. I love this. The idea of earnestly, it means to stretch. It's a picture of a person, two people on either side who've got a blanket over a person and they keep pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. Love, he says, it stretches and it covers. Now hang in there with me. Is he saying that we should hide people's sins and sweep it under the rug? No. Come on, go with me. Every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. Every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. Say that with me. Every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. The Old Testament picture here 
is in Genesis chapter 9. Now, I rarely do this. We're going to put it on the screen. But, but if you've got your Bibles, I literally want you to turn to Genesis chapter 9 right now. And I want you to pick me up in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 9. We're looking at this idea of love covering a multitude of sins. What does that mean? What does that look like? We've got to understand this in the church. Verse 20. Genesis 9. The text says that Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Mm -mm -mm. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward. Here it is and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness or nakedness as they say in Memphis. When, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, that's Ham, he said, "Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. There's so much in this text. I don't have time to get into it. Here's what you need to see. Run down basic synopsis. Noah sins. Bible says he didn't just drink. He got drunk. He got drunk. And in his sin, there was shame. He's naked. Watch it now. Ham sees his father's sin, and instead of covering it, he gossips. He sees the sin, and he tells it. His brothers see the sin, and they deal with it. The Bible says they, they took a garment... They walked backwards and they cover it. That's what love does. So that this passage gives us a picture of love covering sin. Watch it now. And to cover sin does not mean I hide it, I ignore it, I sweep it under the rug. But to cover sin means I deal with it and I deal with it in such a way that as best as I can, I preserve the person's dignity in the process. Lord have mercy. The problem with the church is the church has too many hams and not enough shems and japheths. What gossip does, and it bothers me to no end. I've heard of folk exercising church discipline on people who've had affairs, on people who've committed acts of sexual immorality. And and yes, there should be a case for that. But I'm dying. 
I'm dying to see church discipline done on gossip because in a lot of ways, I think gossip is more, is more destructive to the body of Christ. It pulls the blankets off. It shames people. Parenthesis. Now, as a leader in this church, I've been given a platform. I've been charged by the elders to shepherd the flock of God. If I'm living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin and the elders deem it necessary to remove me, there should be a sense publicly, because my position is public, that you all get an explanation. That's part and parcel of it. I know what I'm stepping into. I'm not talking about those rare exceptions. I'm just talking about the cruel-hearted way that we navigate other folks' sin. Watch it. Look at who gets cursed in the text. Not Noah. Y'all getting this word today? The one who gets the punishment is not the one who did the thing that initiated the process, but it's the one who didn't cover him. Are y'all getting this word today? The body of Christ, we don't have one another's backs. So you find out something about someone. And the first thing you do is to pull a ham and tell it to someone else, but you cloak it in prayer requests. It breaks my heart. Because God covers you. All of us up in here have closets. Some of us got walk-ins. Some of y'all right now, if we were to turn on the lights in your own closet and see the proverbial roaches in your own closet, you would be ashamed. And yet God in his grace is not overlooking your sin, is not dismissing your sin, but his grace is he's covering you and giving you an opportunity to deal with it while in the closet. And yet God deals with us in the closet, but all of a sudden we want to get self-righteous about somebody else. Just like there are certain things you'll never know about my marriage or my kids because we cover. Corey covers me. I cover her. We cover our kids. Likewise, when you see folks sin, learn to zip it. So to cover doesn't mean I ignore it. No, no, no. It, it, it may mean we go out for coffee, just me and you. we sit there and we talk about it. What does love do? Love covers. I'm so thankful for this. When I was 22 years old, I was second in command at this 13,000 person church in LA. I had way too much power and authority than, than the character infrastructure. I, I didn't have the character infrastructure to support all the authority and notoriety I was getting. And I just did some stupid 22 year old stuff. 
And I'm so thankful for a pastor who called me into his office and kicked my behind in that office, but it never got out that office. He could have threw me to the side and I would never have been there. But I'm here today because I've had people in my life who've covered me. Question. Who have you covered? Question. Who's been a Noah and you've pulled a Shem and Japheth and covered? The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. We've got to go. Urgency produces productivity because he's coming back. Have a covering love. Verse 9, he says, because he's coming back, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I've got to fly. The word hospitality in the Greek, the prefix means to friend. The root means stranger. Literally, it means to friend the stranger. Five times in the New Testament, hospitality is used. Let me just give you two of those times. Hebrews 13, 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So the idea of hospitality, literally the idea of friending strangers, it's not just about opening up your home to your boys. Hospitality is not just chilling with people you are in long-term relationship with. Hospitality literally means to open up your home to people you don't even know. To neighbors, to co-workers, to people who've fallen on hard times. In fact, this is so important that one of the qualifications for being an elder, a spiritual leader in the church, as outlined in 1 Timothy and the book of Titus, is the ability to show hospitality. To have a welcoming environment that friends strangers. This is important. Did you know it's not until the year 300 AD that the first building solely dedicated to the church is found. How did the church start? It started in homes where people opened up their homes to people they did not know to worship the living Savior, Jesus Christ. The church started with hospitality. Did you know you got saved because of your hospitality to Jesus Christ? Revelation 3.20, the Bible says, Jesus is talking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and would open up his heart, I will come in and will dine with him and he with me. You got saved because you opened up the door of your proverbial home to Jesus Christ and welcomed him in. Did you know? That every time you take the blessings of God and use them to help someone who's fallen on hard times, you are showing hospitality to Jesus. 
Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. So to show hospitality to the least of these is to show hospitality to Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of y'all in here are very particular about your homes. I know that. I understand that. But hospitality is the believer's landscaping. Say it another way. There are many people in the Bay who will never come to a church but will come to the sanctuary of your home. Your dinner table may be the first pulpit they experience. Your home may be the first sanctuary they might ever cross. It was the great Rosaria Butterfield who shares her own personal testimony. She was a PhD. She was teaching in the feminist department at Syracuse University. Uh, She was living in a gay lifestyle. And Rosaria talks about writing a scathing article back in the 90s against the Promise Keeper movement, this men's movement that had reached its apex. She then gets a letter that is written to her in response by a local pastor. She was expecting judgment and condemnation. She didn't get that. Instead, what she got was was a dinner invite for her and her girlfriend to go over the pastor's house for dinner. She goes over there with her girlfriend. They sit at the table with the pastor and his wife. She says, and they just loved on me. They didn't scold me. They didn't condemn me. They just loved on me. And that dinner turned into another dinner, which turned into another dinner. She says, two years of dinners later, never gone to the church. We finally got saved and she repented of her lifestyle. She says, what changed me was hospitality. My dear friend, John Dennis, who pastors one of my favorite churches in Chicago says these words. Will you look at them with me? The key with hospitality, he says, is to begin. It doesn't matter if you live in an apartment, a dorm, or a house. Once a week, opening our home, baking a few cookies, saying hello in the elevator, checking up on an older neighbor, and borrowing sugar from the next apartment. I love this. He says, we do not practice hospitality to get conversions. We practice hospitality because we are God's people. We share God's goodness through our home because God has shown his goodness to us. His grace overflows the threshold of our homes. He says, show hospitality. Let's go home on this one. Urgency produces productivity. What does this mean? It means finally Christian service. Look at what he says in verse 10. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Five quick statements on spiritual gifts. If you're saved, when you got saved, I love this, you not only got Jesus Christ, but you got a spiritual gift or gifts. If you want to know what your gift or gifts may be, read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, Romans chapter 12, and 1 Peter chapter 4, our verses. This is a catalog of spiritual gifts. This is an incredible statement of value. That God loves you so much that when you got saved, he not only gave you Jesus, but he gave you a gift. Second thing about spiritual gifts, they are from God's grace. 
Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. I love it as good stewards of God's varied grace. In fact, the very phrase spiritual gift comes from the Greek word charisma, which means grace. Listen, I didn't ask for my gift of teaching or preaching, but I got this gift and I got it not because I deserved it or I earned it, but I got it because of God's grace. Therefore, if I got the gift by grace, Brian, be humble. Cormac has a gift of singing. Marquet has a gift of playing. It is the epitome of arrogance and nauseating narcissism to walk around with a spirit of entitlement over something that was given to me. Thirdly, our gifts are given to serve the body of Christ. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, to serve one another, to serve one another. Let me just say this as directly as possible. If you have a spiritual gift or gifts and you're not actively using your gift to build the body of Christ at abundant life, you are in some way, shape or form slowing down God's building project called the church. I knew y'all wouldn't amen on that one. If all church for you is, come, let me get a word. Feed me, pastor. Give me a word. 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 Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. You are headed towards spiritual obesity. I don't know how to say that any other way. If you have been coming to abundant life or any church... And you just come and you get and get and get and get and get. We call that a spiritual teenager. They're leeches. I got to tell you, I got two teenagers. Don't even get me started. Gimme, 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 gimme. God has given you gifts. And a healthy, spiritually mature believer moves from being a consumer to a contributor. Fourth, these gifts, he calls us, we're to be good stewards. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace, which means this. I don't own the gift. The gift has been entrusted to me. And because it's been entrusted to me, I'm going to have to to answer to God for how I stewarded it. I'm going to have to look God face to face and give an account. Brian, what did you do with the gift of teaching I gave you? What did you do with the gift of leadership I gave you? What did you do with the gift of administration I gave you? What did you do with the gift of mercy I gave you? What did you do with the gift of knowledge I gave you? How did you use that to build my people? Fifthly, finally... He says, verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, your gifts are given to you for the edification that is the building up of the body, but ultimately for the glory of God. I don't preach for your approval. Hopefully you're being built up and nourished, but I ultimately preach for the applause of a one-man audience 
His name is God. Therefore, I can say with Paul, it's a small thing whether I'm judged by you. Am I okay with God? Because it's all for his glory. As Cormac and the team come forward, as we prepare to close out our service, at any given moment, Christ can return. Stay woke. This afternoon isn't promised. Tomorrow isn't promised. Have a sense of urgency. Live your life for what matters. I've got two calls today. Someone, maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. And maybe there's just this emptiness, this restlessness in your soul and you keep putting it off and keep putting it off and keep putting it off. Do you know how many obituaries there are in the San Francisco Chronicle of people who made wonderful plans and then all of a sudden God just kind of pulled them out of this life? You don't have tomorrow. What you do have is right now. And right now, God has ordered your steps to hear this word. He's coming. Will you be ready? And someone here today, your act of readiness is for the first time in your life to say yes to Jesus. So I want to create a space for you to come. Someone else, maybe you're here today. You are a follower of Jesus, but you're just saying, Pastor, I got second coming fatigue. I've been living a complacent life. I've been getting maybe drunk off the things of this world. I have not been operating with a sense of urgency and I needed to hear this word, but I want you to pray for me that I would step out of my apathy and lethargy and that I would have a sense of urgency. So two calls, someone who wants to say yes to Jesus Christ for the first time today or someone who is a believer, but you're going to honestly say, I've been complacent I want to have a sense of urgency to my life. I want to snap out of it. Would you pray for me? I'm going to pray and you're going to come. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are expectant. We come with expectant hearts today. The seed of your word has gone out. We believe that your word will not return void, Lord God. So you have us today. You have our hearts. And Lord God, as you right now are tugging by the power of your spirit of God, either on this floor or up in the balcony, Father, would you just allow us to say yes to you? Maybe our act of stepping out of complacency is literally getting out of our seats and coming down front to surrender to you. Do it now, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus.